some dangerous large uh, carnivore out there. Yeah, I saw that bird kick a young deer off the road and fly away. And uh, it was just about getting dark and we started panicking, running down the bridge, not really having any clue of storing rocks in our vicinity, good sized rocks. And uh, I stopped long enough to get a 357 out of my backpack and look back and that's when I thought I saw one.
episode uh, one with uh, Max Hawthorne, the author of Kronos Rising, and uh, part two will be released tomorrow. So uh, check that out. Also coming up is Beachfoot 2016, uh, July 21st through the 24th, Todd Neese's invitation-only event here in Oregon. And uh, I know that Shane and I will both be there, as well as Mr. Henry May. Um, We will get a chance to uh, hang out with Henry. That will be fun. And lots of other um, great uh, Bigfoot researchers and enthusiasts. So I'm pretty excited about that. Without uh, further ado, I would like to uh, bring on our guest, Mr. John Kirk. John is uh, one of the world's excuse me, leading cryptozoological investigators, and he is the president of the British Columbia Scientific Cryptozoology Club. So, and he's been around for a while studying uh, not just Bigfoot, our favorite topic, but also all kinds of cryptids. So, um, I'm excited to bring John on. So, John, are you there? I am indeed, Gunnar. Thank you very much for having me on. Hello, Shane. Hello, hey, it's great Shane. to have How you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today, John. So just for uh, those that uh, up in our audience that aren't familiar with uh, you and your work, can you give us a little bit of a, uh, who is John Kirk? Yeah, I'm a... Um, <laughs> I'm a person who's a dual Canadian and, and British citizen who lives uh, in a Vancouver suburb. I became involved in cryptozoology back in 1987 after a um, cryptid encounter of my own. Uh, since then, I've just basically run the whole gamut of cryptids. There really isn't one that I'm not interested in, other than the ones that are you know, highly speculative. But you know, if you're talking about the big ones like Sasquatch, the lake creatures, Cadbrosaurus, Michele and Bembe, Thunderbirds... Um, you know, um, uh, black cats uh, that appear out of place and all that kind of stuff. Sure, I'm interested in every single facet of that and have involved myself uh, and immersed myself in the research over the decades. And it's been a lot of fun, a lot of controversy, and uh, cost me a bleeding fortune. And and I think people need to be aware of that, that uh, most researchers of uh, not just uh, Bigfoot, but all cryptids are doing a lot of this on their own dime. So, um, yeah, if, you if have cryptozoology. Got... Sorry, go ahead. No, go go ahead, John. If cryptozoology um, was a paying gig, uh, people like me, Lauren Coleman, you know, Jeff Meldrum, and and uh, a lot of people who've written books and. Uh, being involved in the subject for a long time, we'd be paupers. Thank God we've got real jobs outside <laughs> or real professions. Otherwise, we'd, uh, you know, we wouldn't be out there and able to do this because there is no money, no money to be made in cryptozoology. I think the only person that ever made any money from this field in a really realistic way was Roger Patterson when he took the film out um, on the tour back in '68, '69. And even then, there was a limit to how much money he actually made from it. But the rest of us, oh, well, you know, we do this purely for the love of the game, as they say. And um, it's a never-ending adventure. Uh, we found none of the major cryptids yet. People have had encounters with them, and they're very valid indeed. 
But in terms of the uh, vital evidence that's required to prove any of these guys once and for all, well, we're still in the game, and hopefully at some point in the future uh, we'll produce evidence. Um, it's been a bit of a sad story because Rene de Hinden, Grover Krantz, John Green, um, they passed away without ever seeing the fruition of their uh, particular field there in terms of actual tangible physical evidence of Sasquatch. And I hope to heaven that before I leave this um, mortal place, I will have had some opportunity to see real tangible evidence of a cryptid anywhere. And I'm, I'm praying and hoping that that is the case. Well, I hope that for you, too, and as well as I know that I am looking forward to um, tangible evidence coming forth and uh, working on it. But, uh, yeah, so far a lot. And it's, it is sad that uh, um, I know that we just lost John Green um, recently. And uh, can you talk a little bit about your relationship with John? Certainly, yes. We had um, a very interesting relationship in that, from day one, we didn't necessarily see eye to eye about a variety of subjects, but uh, he and I had um, a very interesting relationship in that we respected each other immensely. Um, I did not agree with him that uh, Sasquatch was a pongid, and therefore, you know, there was no moral qualm about hunting one down. I certainly do not hold that particular point of view. Uh, but over the years, we cooperated in a variety of ways. He was a wonderful fixture at all the British Columbia scientific cryptozoology events that we ever invited him to. He was very gracious, and his wife, June, would attend with him. And in 2009, when we celebrated our 20th, uh, 25th anniversary, John and uh, June graced us with their presence and did the cake-cutting ceremony and were very accessible to all our membership and all the guests who were there. Um, I admire his thoroughness, his methodology, his ability to collect data, interpret that data, disseminate it like uh, on his uh, database, which is now back up on the Internet. And um, overall, he was the most commonsensical person in the Bigfoot field ever. Uh, Rene de Hinden was a closer friend of mine than John was, but I would certainly pay the, the ultimate tribute to John, which is common sense. Um, rationality and plausibility were all part of his game plan and he executed those things brilliantly um, he's a, a wonderful man his loss is absolutely tragic but what one can't really complain when one has lived for 89 years but it's vital I feel that we must perpetuate his memory let me tell you about a little story that happened yesterday yesterday was Sasquatch days in John's former place of residence, Harrison Hot Springs, here in British Columbia. And the uh, Sithalus Nation uh, celebrate this on a, a fairly regular basis now. The first one was back in 1938, and it's been revived recently, and they do a really good job of bringing Sasquatch to the fore on that particular day, um, insofar as it exists in their traditions and what have you. But yesterday, John hasn't been gone very long, and all these speeches were being given about Sasquatch and Harrison Hot Springs. Nobody mentioned John. And I was in a state of shock. I would have thought that the man who put Harrison Hot Springs on the map would have been commemorated in some way, shape, or form. 
And it dawned on me that, okay, if a town ever needed a statue of a local hero, well, Harrison Hot Springs certainly requires one of John Green because along with Renee and the people who were involved in the um, BC centenary celebrations back in the 1950s, wanting to do the Sasquatch hunt and then subsequently making um, Harrison Hot Springs the Sasquatch epicenter of the universe, it was really vital that he be commemorated somehow. And the fact that he wasn't yesterday really broke my heart. I even went there yesterday wearing um, a T-shirt from Tom Yamarone's, uh, uh, what was it, Sasquatch Summit, a tribute to John Green from 2011. And nobody recognized it. They, they sort of looked blankly at this, this T-shirt that I was wearing. Most people, I think, all people didn't know who the heck John Green was or that we'd even had an event of that magnitude there in Harrison Hot Springs. So, you know, there is a consciousness of, of Sasquatch. You see him everywhere in Harrison. But I think it's really important that um, John Green be uh, commemorated there and also in the way that he conducted his research. Um, I talked to John for the last time on April 23rd last year. Bob Gimlin, Tom Yamron, and I were visiting John, and he had told us about how he had retired from the field. He was just asking us for an update on what was going on. And you should have seen him. He shook his head at what's been going on in the field, what we related to him, how this has um, diverged so far and so radically from what he, Renee, Peter Byrne, Grover Krantz, and all the pioneers, the Bob Titmuses of this world, um, how it's diverged so far from the uh, sensible, methodical, scientific, and rational uh, way of doing things. So my, my greatest tribute, I believe, that we can give to John Green is to espouse and embrace the principles that he so wonderfully and accurately uh, presented to us in, in the many volumes of his work. His books are absolute treasures. They're like gold in the Sasquatch world. Uh, Apes Among Us has got to be the best one ever. And um, I would say that I would really encourage people out there to reread that book and read all of John Green's other books so that we can come to this place of, how shall I put this, um, honoring the man through our efforts. Well, well said, John. Well said. You know, the sad thing is, you know, a vast we have a huge audience, and the vast majority knows who John Green is. But to um, give the guy some kudos, do you and, and, and relive uh, his endeavors. Do you mind for the audience that is not aware of John Green, and that is a bit sad, but it's true. Do you mind just uh, tell us a little bit more about John Green? You know, uh, who was John Green? Yeah, John Green was a uh, gentleman who was born and raised in Vancouver, British Columbia, graduated from the journalism department of the University of British Columbia, and then went on to get um, further education at Columbia University in New York. And he moved to uh, the town of Harrison Hot Springs and uh, bought a newspaper there and started publishing, you know, a, a local rag. And then uh, one day, as a joke, he published a story about a, a maiden being kidnapped from, it was, it was an <laughs> April Fool's joke, from the Harrison Hot Springs Hotel. And that elicited a bit, elicited a bit of a, a laugh. And then he met um, some people there in Harrison, for instance, Essie uh, Tifting. Essie Tifting was a um, school janitor, and he told him the story about 
the Chapman experience at Ruby Creek back there in those days. And uh, John became very interested. And then there was this push by the local committee at Harrison Hot Springs who wanted to have this great Sasquatch hunt. And uh, John was wise counsel in that. Along comes Rennie to Hinden shortly thereafter. And the birth of the Sasquatch realm, as we, we know it, occurred largely due to John Green and Rennie to Hinden back in those days. From that point onwards, um, John would never say that he was a believer because the word belief doesn't enter into the equation here when we're discussing this sort of stuff. But he was the first guy that that realized that um, entering data into a computer would be a very good way of finding out uh, more about possible Sasquatch habitats, time of year, altitudes, all kinds of stuff. And he was a pioneer there in the area of computerized um, Sasquatch investigations. He was also part of the Northwest Expedition of Tom Slicks back in 1958. Uh, He went down there for a period of time. Uh, It wasn't working for him, so he came back up to Canada. Uh, He was also largely responsible for bringing to the attention of the world the tracks that were up there on... um, uh, Blue Creek Mountain and Onion Mountain back in 67, just prior to Roger and Bob uh, going out there in search of Patty. And um, he, was a, he was a miracle worker. He got a newspaper to fly him down in 1967 uh, for that particular event, along with Rene. And also Don Abbott from the uh, University of British Columbia was somehow, not university, the BC Museum was roped into this, a really eminent and good scientist. And then he also got the famous uh, tracking dog that, that uh, called White Lady, who was part of the efforts there. Prior to that, not a lot of people had used dogs, but uh, John certainly had heard of it, and he employed it in his work there. Um, he really is a heroic figure in the realm of Sasquatch. I would classify him as the eldest statesman of the Sasquatch world, and um, he was a balanced, reasoned, and highly, highly educated individual that you just couldn't pull the the um, uh, you couldn't pull the wool over his eyes. There was no way that, that you could possibly do that. He was very good at unmasking hoaxes and um, basically just shelving stuff that he thought would lead absolutely nowhere, even though it was interesting. He was certainly economical in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely well said, and you nailed it. Uh, I don't think. Um, you know, John Green was one in a million. I don't think there'd be anything, anybody like John Green ever. And unfortunately, uh, his passing without having seen uh, absolute evidence uh, of Sasquatch existence to me is heartbreaking in a way. The guy spent the majority of his life and, and a lot of his reputation uh, following this endeavor. And uh, that's a shame. But to honor John Green, I agree with you fully on that you know as researchers as investigators as enthusiasts you can honor him by uh mimicking his research and looking at his research of what made him good what what uh what was he doing because to me he was doing everything correct he was doing everything right uh, uh do you agree with that you know i completely concur with that thought and i think that um you know, there's plenty of room for innovation out there in the Sasquatch world, and John certainly would have believed in that too. I mean, he marveled at some of the things that people were now doing, using drones in the hunt and that kind of thing. Um, but um, uh, even though the, the methodologies are there, 
it's the it's what we think of Sasquatch that's very important. You know, what type of entity is this? And John was always very much in the camp of it being a flesh and blood entity. Um, it was part of the biological sphere, and it had a place in the realm of zoology rather than the paranormal. And we would do well in this day and age where so many bizarre and crazy thoughts are coming out uh, to, to follow John's lead. John said, you never try and solve a mystery using another mystery. It just doesn't work. You have to stick to rationalism. The, that is like the the best one of the best quotes ever. I mean that and yep. and good direction when you're when you're going out looking for um and examining evidence. I think some people's frustration with not being able to get tangible evidence leads them down uh leads them askew down another path. It might explain behavior, it doesn't excuse the behavior. So, um. without doubt, I Sorry. think you know when you look at John, um, he was a guy who was a journalist, and one of the, the best things about being a, a real and a serious journalist, because I've done this myself for a living, is that you must adhere to the truth. Um, it's very easy to sensationalize in the world of journalism because it sells papers or sells stories. But in John's particular case, and in the case of uh, other people like myself who've been in that journalistic world, there is that area of journalistic integrity which makes you stick with the truth no matter how good, bad, ugly it is. You just simply have to go with that. And John was certainly from that school. If, if it was black, it was black. It wasn't green, blue, gold, or silver. And that's how John was. And, of course, you know, a lot of people got displeased by that because he'd call people on stuff that they would tell him about or brought to him purely because it didn't make sense or it was so fanciful that it defied anything that we possibly knew about physics and the, the universe that we live in. So, you know, um, that, that to me was one of the greatest contributions that John ever made. He was a man who kept it sensible. Yeah, absolutely, and, and he compiled uh, a huge database. I know recently you managed to uh, uh, put that database back online and that made it more accessible to the general public, and uh, that was huge. No, that's uh, a misperception. I, I, I had all the files downloaded, and I was about to reshare them, but I think okay. his daughter, Marion Ennis, actually put that one back there. So it wasn't me. I can't take credit for that. But I can tell you I was delighted that people now had ready access to that again because it disappeared for quite a while. But hopefully it was done in uh, memory of John because uh, this tool is just amazing. The amount of people who came to me after I had mentioned that it had disappeared and asked for the files was phenomenal. There was no way I could get everybody on it, but, you know, like a couple of days later, maybe uh, word spread like wildfire and it was back up again after having gone for so long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do want to switch gears a bit, but I'm going to ask this question here, and I'm not going to get into the whole uh, – I'm going to touch upon the Patty film here, but, uh, you know, it's it's almost a pointless argument. Not – for say for me, I got my belief or my ideas of the Patty film, and I know you do as well, John. Uh, but do you know if John Green, uh, having you know met and been around Bob, did, you, did he have any opinion as to the validity of the Patty film, uh, the Patterson Gimlin film from 1967? Oh yeah, he sure as heck did. <laughs> um, I can remember the first time I met him was back in. 1989 and we had a wonderful afternoon at his house and, and chatted and he was very forthcoming so 
we decide to invite him to come to the uh, British Columbia Scientific Cryptozoology Club annual dinner at the Engineers Club in Vancouver and to present um, his thoughts and opinions on the Patterson film and to show it to people there. So John shows up. He shows the film. Um, he basically does his presentation. That room was full of scientists from places like University of British Columbia, uh, Simon Fraser University, and other august places of learning. Not one person from the scientific community uh, chose to refute, argue, or otherwise uh, debate the film. Rather, they asked very intelligent questions about the biomechanics of this creature because obviously its locomotion with the compliant gate is so very unusual that anybody who knows anything about locomotion picks it up right away. But John was firmly of the opinion that this is a film of Sasquatch. Not only did he think it was a film of Sasquatch, he said it's the only piece of film that's corroborated by the footprints as well. Now, I've heard other people argue about that, well, the footprints could have been put in, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. But um, honestly speaking, there's no um, reasonable or cogent argument to dispute the uh, testimonies of Gimlin and Patterson that they cast the tracks immediately after the creature walked there. It's borne out uh, to some degree by Lyle Lafferty coming there a couple of days later and eventually Bob Titmus coming in and, and uh, casting about 10 of them thereafter. John was, was pretty certain that that film was real. He, could, he always used to joke, I can't see the zipper, which is really <laughs> quite funny. The irony is this. You know, John had a, a really caustic wit and a, a very, very dry sense of humor, and he used to keep his copy of the Patterson film. It was a little real, and he kept it in a box. And on the, that box, he had pasted a picture from Mad Magazine, which was a commemoration of National Gorilla Suit Day. And that was his way of being sarcastic to the people who said that this was a man in the suit. You know, he was there the day that um, Roger Patterson and Aldi Attlee showed the film on October 22nd to him, Renee, and Jim McLaren. Uh, Bob wasn't there. Bob was at home sleeping after a grueling journey. Ask him about that one sometime. He'll tell you some hair-raising things that happened that night. But um, uh, they said uh, Patterson had nothing to hide. The box in which the original film had come was sitting right there on the coffee table, right? De Hinden picked it up, twirled it around for, for a long time while he was watching the film, you know, like how we fidget. Well, Rene was twisting it in the air with his fingertips, right, for ages and ages. Um, John actually had the box in his hand at some time as well. Neither It didn't dawn on either one of them, okay, to look at the box to see where the film was actually developed. That would have, been, that would have solved a lot of problems. But the people who say, oh, yeah, Diatley and, and Patterson had this developed ages before, well, if they did, they wouldn't have been stupid enough to leave the box lying around. Um, I have a feeling that this particular film was developed by Diatley at a place that was rather disreputable. I, I won't go into that until I have more facts about it, but suffice it to say, yeah, I, I can understand why he didn't want to tell people where he had it done, but John was, was really adamant about that film being the real thing, and he passed away with that notion in his mind uh, to the very last day. <clears throat> yeah, uh, well, well, that's fantastic. Uh, you know, I know what you just shared with us uh, is, wow, it's amazing, uh, the history behind the film 
And I'd love, you know, knowing John Green's opinion, uh, having you been around John Green and, and, and witnessed many of many of his uh, statements and, and whatnot. That's fantastic. Uh, but, John, I'm really curious. Uh, you're out of Canada. Uh, I'm really curious as to Sasquatch. A lot of our viewers have been asking us, what's going on in Canada? You know, what's going on in Canada? You know, uh, you got this magnificent country with beautiful, majestic uh, forests and areas. What's going on in Canada? Out of, you know, last, you know, five, six years specifically, we've had some hoaxers. Uh, I, I'm not going to name names. I don't want to give them publicity, but I call them hoaxers. And we've had them here in the U.S. as well. Very aware of those. But what is going on in Canada that, uh, makes it almost unique in your opinion because to me Canada has a lot going for it and I believe it's a perfect habitat to have uh, Sasquatch uh, you know uh, you know for those researchers that are in Canada it's a great place to research bar none yeah it absolutely is I mean I was out there at the back end of Sasquatch Provincial Park yesterday with with Ona and um, we were rambling around the hillsides and stuff looking for evidence, you know. And we take our time. Um, for instance, Winona walks faster than I do, but I'm always lagging behind because I'm checking trees, bushes, um, uh, anything that you can uh, snag hair on uh, to see if there's any hairline about, no, there wasn't any yesterday. But I think one of the things that makes us different up here in B.C. is just how skeptical we are. Now, you would think that people who are in the epicenter of the Sasquatch world uh, would be, you know, tremendously excited about every single sighting that comes about and um, every piece of evidence that's allegedly adduced in favor of Sasquatch. Well, we're not. Um, it's really interesting. There's Thomas Steenberg up here, myself, Jason Kane, Bill Miller, um, and a variety of other great people who, who work together in many different ways. And... Um, we we have this attitude that okay so you've got you say you saw sasquatch or you have sasquatch evidence prove it we're almost as skeptical as skeptics are which is rather different from america because people go um, i look at all the forums i'm a member of many many forums on facebook and other places and um i see people jumping to the conclusion that some blurry picture with a red ring around it is a sasquatch well here in Canada, we don't even look at those things, you know, because uh, they're a complete waste of time. Unless it's as clear as the Patterson-Gimlin film and a few other pieces of evidence, you've really got nothing, plain and simple as that. So, you know, better luck next time. Go and try and get something better because we remain to be persuaded. Um, we're also extremely um, skeptical of just random sighting reports and what have you. That's why Thomas Steenberg and myself in particular – we use um, uh, questionnaires that are like 18 pages long. They are very detailed because uh, we, want, we want to be able to look at everything that the person claims happened to them, um, study it thoroughly, and then make an informed decision. I mean, we're a little bit different from, say, Finding Bigfoot, where some guy tells you a story, and I'm not criticizing the Finding Bigfoot people, but they'll say, oh, it sounds like you had a Sasquatch sighting. We take a lot longer to figure that out. Because Sasquatch sightings up here in B.C., while they continue to happen, aren't an everyday occurrence. Some people think that people see Sasquatches every day. Um, I'm, I'm going through a particular process right now 
um, a gentleman who is doing a massive paper on Sasquatch and geography up here at Simon Fraser University um, asked me for information and um, help in, in doing this particular study, and we've been working on that one, and he's, he's done a terrific job. But while he was doing it, uh, one of his colleagues said, oh, I hear you're interested in Sasquatch. Well, I encountered one. And this is from a, a person who's got a master's degree from a major university here. So they sent me the photographs of this thing that's standing behind a bunch of rocks. And one of the things that makes it very positive is it looks like a Sasquatch. It's not completely clear. But the fact is that the witness was a completely disinterested party who has not really had any further interest in what she saw since she actually saw it. Um, it was very good, too, to see the, the quality of the witnesses on Finding Bigfoot when they did Squatch Wars, you know, they came up to BC, I think it was uh, Matt and Cliff, and they went out on the Chehalis Reserve, a place that we've been there to a, a million times. For some reason, they thought they were the first people up there, but it's just our local Sasquatch area. But here in BC, we work very hard to keep it rational and scientific, because we have dialogues with the universities here in British Columbia, which we can't say is the case of a lot of places around the world. It's unfortunate. But here, because of the credibility of the way we do things, we have certain access. Um, there haven't been too many massive sightings lately, except for the one I just told you about, which happened back in April. And it was a place that Renona and I had been searching in back in, um, what was it, in December, and uh, sorry, January, and we didn't have any luck. And it's also been an area where some guys from the BFRO have had some very good luck. They've, they've recorded some wood knocks and vocalizations and what have you, and, and we think they've done a terrific job there. But um, again, everybody has to sort through and sift through the evidence, weigh it up, and then decide whether to keep it or discard it. We just don't accept things. And if it's not particularly useful, we don't spend a lot of time going to areas, looking for stuff that's vague. Did you see any footprints? No. Well, it, it's pointless going back to the location unless you wanted to do something like a size measurement to make sure that whatever the witnesses saw uh, was as big as they said it was, which is fair enough. And even that takes a massive process before we're even willing to do that. So it seems yeah, John, like you... I mean, you guys are really working the, from the premise of Bigfoot Last, which is one of uh, our friends, Shelley Covington, Montana, uh, is kind of her mantra of, of approaching evidence. Absolutely, and that's why I get on really well with Shelley Covington, Montana, <laughs> one of the finest, most logical researchers out there. I've had the pleasure of being out in the bush with uh, her and Shane uh, last year, and, uh, you know, Shelley's a genius. She's got one of the best... DNA kits I've ever seen, and that mantra is something that we should be repeating to ourselves over and over again. In fact, I think anyone who refers to themselves as a Bigfoot researcher should have be required to get it tattooed. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think we also <laughs> need to do, do something a little more pragmatic, too, which is a Bigfoot researcher versus a Bigfoot investigator, right? Now, there's mm -hmm. loads of people who are armchair enthusiasts, and that's terrific. They can quote you every page of John Green's book, Jeff Meldrum's Sasquatch Legend Meets Science, and everything else that's ever written, but they haven't spent a single day in the field. It's wonderful to have a historical background, and I think that's very useful, in which case call yourself a Bigfoot or Sasquatch investigator. 
if you're actually out there in the field and methodically looking for evidence for this creature, then you're allowed to wear that uh, mantle of Sasquatch investigator. I think that's perfectly fair. I'm not saying this is the law, but I think that that's how we should distinguish ourselves and give ourselves more credibility that way. Well, certainly people that are, are posting uh, paranoia uh, pictures of and red circle Sasquatches on the Internet or on Facebook in particular, you know, do not qualify for researcher status or investigator status. But, uh, um, and, I, and I've often said that big, one thing we know for sure is that, that this phenomenon, this creature will not be uh, proven on Facebook. <laughs> Definitely not. Well said. <laughs> but I mean, it, and it's. Um, I, I'm very much of a pragmatic approach to to the study of this creature, and so I very much maybe I need to move to Canada. Oh, we'd be delighted to have you. Absolutely. <laughs> and so, you have to bring the coffee with you because you know what Sasquatch yeah. coffee is like. Bring it up, bro. That's right. Uh, it's coming. I will send some back with you. Uh, are you coming to Beachfoot? Not this year, unfortunately, because we've got limited oh. vacation time because we're getting married in September. So um, uh, I absolutely love going to Beach. Thank you very much. I love being there with mm-hmm. uh, Todd and Diane. They're just wonderful hosts, and they host a terrific event. And um, I'm hoping that you guys who are going this year will have a ball uh, like we have in the past few. It's just been spectacular. I agree. Sorry, I was writing a note. Um, so, John, tell us a little bit about your most your most recent um, research and what it, I mean, what are you up to right now? Well, as um, because it's convenient, right? Um, I live across the river from Golden Ears Provincial Park, where the photographs I mentioned just now were taken. So that's a very fertile place for us to go. And I'm very respectful of the fact that some friends of ours from the BFRO have been in there for years and years and years. So anything that we get, I will I will definitely share with the the chaps in the BFRO. Um, we also do a lot of investigations out at Harrison Hot Springs as well. Uh, the Chalice Reserve, Sasquatch Provincial Park, uh, Mount Woodside, Morris Valley, all that area, which is really great. I'm also, as you well know, uh, very interested in Cadborosaurus and Ogopogo, the two aquatic cryptids of BC. And um, it, it's been um, a really sort of uh, dead period, especially for Cadborosaurus. We haven't had any sighting reports for like two years or so. But that's not surprising simply because with global warming and what have you, we've had uh, an adverse effect on salmon runs and what have you. They weren't as big in the last couple of years as they were several years back. The year I had my own Cadbrosaurus sighting, which was 2010, was the biggest um, salmon run in the history of B.C., I think, that particular month when uh, I spotted this thing at the mouth of the Fraser River. Uh, we had 35 million salmon go up the river when the average is about six or seven. So this was pretty phenomenal. Um, in the case of Ogopogo, for like two or three years, there was absolutely nothing happening until two um, French-Canadian ladies spotted it last year. Uh, or one of them. There's probably more than one in the lake. It needs a viable breeding population. And um, that sparked a whole bunch of people coming out from... Um, 
you know, uh, the corners of the, the closet there and saying, okay, these ladies were gutsy enough to say what they saw, so, okay, they've given us the courage to say, look, we had a similar experience, and there was a whole bunch of them that took place in 2015, which is extremely promising. But, you know, I've done a hell of a lot of searching out on Okanagan Lake over the years, and it's literally like looking for a needle in a million haystacks. The volume of water there is astronomical. It's 80 miles long, two miles wide at its widest point, and you can put the entire population of Earth in there, like twice over or something. You know, somebody did some statistical study of that. Uh, whether that's true or not is uh, an, another thing, but I could see it being plausible. Um, and the depths in that lake are incredible. Down by Peachland, it's 800 feet deep. Um, uh, just north of Kelowna on the west side near Bear Creek, it's almost 1,000 feet deep. So, you know, you're talking about a very deep lake with massive volume and trying to find this particular creature. On top of that, I've journeyed farther afield um, to Africa in search of Makale and Bembe. And I've been working with Bill Gibbons and uh, re more recently with Michelle Below and the French team um, who've had some really interesting uh, things happen to them in the most recent adventure of theirs back in uh, April. Uh, they were in uh, southern Cameroon, and they uh, go to this island on the way to the falls of Inki, which is the far end of the Jar River, where we do a lot of our searching, because there have been lots of sight sightings up there by fishermen who range up there to do a little bit of um, sort of um, out-of-the-way type fishing. And they discovered tracks of this creature, two different sets of tracks, on a place called the Isle of Bees. And um, it just blew my mind when I saw them because they're not like crocodile tracks. They're not monitor lizard tracks. And they're not the type of tracks that we would have expected we would have found th uh, thinking that this is possibly a sauropod dinosaur. The mystery just gets deeper and deeper. But suffice it to say, you know, um, my range of interest in, in this particular uh, realm of science, that is cryptozoology with the scientific bent, um, has, has kept me busy constantly for, well, how many years is it coming to? It's uh, 29 years this year, so, um, and it doesn't seem to want to abate or relent. And, and your amount of years, you now, you're talking about, John, you know, um, a needle in a haystack when, look, when, you're, when you're talking about Okapogo and some of these other cryptids even. Much can be the same for me personally, looking back at... Uh, what I'm doing and many others are doing in the search for Sasquatch. Uh, it, it really is a needle in a haystack. You know, Gunnar uh, says many times that, uh, you know, it's a moving needle in a haystack. You know, it's, it's not stationary. Uh, so, so what do you think it's going to take um, in the pursuit of Sasquatch specifically uh, to bring uh, Sasquatch uh, to the table, uh, metaphorically speaking, you know, in, in, in the search for it. You know, what, what, what is it going to take? You know, you did a presentation, I think it was back in 2005, uh, at the Sasquatch Research Conference, and the topic, your topic of discussion was using CSI techniques. And that really, to my knowledge, you know, it may have been discussed before, but that was kind of unique, a unique discussion uh, that most researchers probably at that time and they're really really considered uh, is that something that's being done now uh, or, uh, or are we lacking yeah well definitely i think that um 
if you look at people like Jeff Meldrum, for instance, and John Bindenagel, the effort to find physical evidence uh, from a scientific perspective is very similar to that that would have been used by law enforcement agencies, right? We're all looking for the definitive thing at the end of the day. And so the, the two paths converge very appropriately in the realm of Sasquatch. But what we really seriously need is a massive united effort uh, dragging in everybody that we possibly can who's willing to work within an established scientific framework, okay, and, um, and sharing data, evidence, findings, you name it, doing it collaboratively and um, collectively. Um, this isn't happening, and, and this is a real problem because everybody wants to be first past the post, right? They want to be the first person to find Sasquatch evidence. Uh, they want the, the Hall of Fame plaque and, and what have you. And that's not going to get us where we really want to go. And um, to think, as we use that analogy just now of looking for moving needles in the haystack, um, it's going to take a massive effort of concentrating on one particular fertile area. You know, for instance, you guys are doing the Olympic project, which is a very worthwhile project indeed, and, and done very scientifically. Um, but you again have this problem of the massive size of the Olympic Peninsula. Well, what needs to be done is everybody who's interested in Sasquatch has to come out there and defer to the, the, the um, let's say, the, the local research group, like, say, the, uh, the Olympic project, and work as a team and really go through that area for a, a period of time. Say, everybody take a couple of weeks vacation and um, in an organized and scientific fashion, mobilize and work in that area until you've exhausted every possibility. Um, you know, simple um, statistics and analysis tells us that if there are Sasquatches in that area, if you had a big enough presence of humans who were intelligently looking for this creature, something would be yielded. And um, not to infringe on you guys particularly, I mean, I respect people uh, wanting to keep their areas as is, but, you know, to, to a limit. But if that was the case... Uh, we'd be part of the way there towards a solution. But the trouble is, you know, even when Renee and John went down to, the, uh, to Onion Mountain in 1967, there were four people. There <laughs> isn't much of a group to find stuff. And, you know, they found hundreds of Sasquatch prints, three different sets of them down there. And yet there were four people down there to look for this. Well, you're, not, you're never going to find anything when you don't have the resources. So, if we were to say, okay, we come up with something like Project, let's just call it Project X, and got everybody on board and everybody found the time to be there, I think we'd come up with something. And uh, in particular, physical evidence, because there's got to be some hair or fur or a piece of tissue on something somewhere in there. I cut myself uh, on my finger twice in the same day today and left my blood and tissue <laughs> somewhere, right? Um, well, when you're walking through wilderness and what have you, and you get cuts and scratches all the time, it's par for the course. Well, if we had enough numbers out there, not just looking for the creature itself, just to have the jollies of a sighting, but to find the evidence, I think if the if the um, the manhunt was big enough, as it were, like you know, sheriffs and posses going out looking for escaped convicts and that kind of thing, I think it would work. John, it seems to me. <clears throat> that you've given this a lot of thought. Uh, 
do you possibly down the road have something in the works? Or do you have a broader scheme going in your mind that you want to uh, make, you know, make into fruition, make something happen like this? Well, I'll tell you this. That particular thought was actually quite spontaneous. It, it occurred to me while I was talking to you. I've had similar thoughts, but nothing as, as cogent as that until this very moment, to be honest. I have no secret agenda. Um, I honestly, I've always harped on about how we need to cooperate in this field and uh, look for real evidence rather than trying to find our niche in the Bigfoot world and establish followings, which is unfortunately the case of some. Let's not hide our heads, heads in the sand about this. It's very real. It does happen. But um, uh, it's only just occurred to me at the, the, the scale of, of what we would want to be doing in this particular case. So, you know, um, I would certainly like to be involved in something like that, and uh, we would have to do it in America because there's way more of you than there are of us. And I can't think of a better place to do it than either the Olympic Peninsula or the Gifford Pinchot National Forest where we were last year. My gosh, that's like Sasquatch Haven up there. Mm-hmm. I, I, well, I, yeah, I totally of, agree. Yeah. <laughs> I can think of one other area that seems really um, has some possibilities, but <laughs> but I also may have a, a strong bias towards the Toma Forest. So. <laughs> oh yeah, that goes without mm-hmm. saying. Absolutely mm-hmm. yes. You know, and that's a little and, bit more manageable as well. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I, I have a, uh, I like to have sayings, and one of mine is collaboration, not competition. And uh, it, it, I totally agree with you that that uh, boy, a, a massive. Um, grid search kind of effort in a very uh, uh, high probability location would be uh, outstanding. I think we need to, uh, uh, if we want to make that happen, that that be uh, that is uh, got huge possibilities. I know that that uh, you know they there was a crash and failed project that I won't mention the name of at the moment, um, but. Uh, the idea, you know, even um, some of the folks that showed up for that um, in a short period of time had some activity in in the area that they they had intended to use as their initial research area. Um, I it uh, the sooner we can do this, I think the the better. Um, and of course, this time of year is a great time of year to be out um, in the field looking for uh, evidence and uh, and activity. Indeed, and I think, um, you know, uh, we we could talk about this off-air at some point and perhaps, you know, bring together a group of um, mutually interested people and um, make this um, concept become a reality because, really, um, there's always strength in numbers. United we stand, divided we fall. And I really believe that um, we could make a difference if we work as a team. Absolutely, uh, and that's what it's going to take, in my opinion, is a very collaborative uh, endeavor. Uh, you know, there's, there's, you got all these groups in North America. Just speaking specifically of North America, of course, we got groups worldwide, but in North America, all these groups, and many of them are fine groups. Many of them are nine groups, are individuals uh, with a lot of things going on in these areas. Um, they have some great. Uh, anecdotal evidence, uh, but it, it 
at the end of the day, what does it all mean? Uh, you know, what are what what's your purpose? I think it'd be really grand to get multiple groups together, focus on an area, and see it through, regardless of the outcome. But see it through long term, and uh, document everything. You know, uh, there will be plenty. See, the cool thing is. You know, people say, well, how do we get science involved? How do we get science involved? Well, we do have science involved. Uh, you know, of course, we don't have the whole spectrum of science involved, but we do have scientists, you know, as individuals involved. To get them involved on a more minute scale, I think, would be uh, the way to go and document everything. And uh, most of the people that I work with and you work with, John, um, are already skeptics as is, uh, and they have a huge amount of skepticism, uh, and so they have a keen eye. Uh, it's going to take a lot for them to possibly get excited or uh, really um, jump to any conclusion, if any at all. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I do indeed. Um, I think that we have leadership in terms of science in the Bigfoot world. I mean, Bindanagel and Meldrum would certainly keep this, this sort of an event kosher if they were participants in it. Certainly, there would be um, a clear and cogent explanation of what we're looking for, what is required. I mean, this is not to placate scientists. This is not to placate skeptics. The greater issue here is satisfying our own curiosity as to what this is, settling, um, how shall I say it, very divisive arguments as to what a Sasquatch is. Is it a pongid? Is it a hominid? Um, this kind of thing. Uh, the only way that you're really going to preserve and save a Sasquatch is to find out exactly what it is. As you guys well know, I am definitely no kill. And, um, you know, I, I'm not against uh, finding a dead one on the side of the road. It doesn't happen very often, but we've had some sort of interesting um, events that have taken place in history. But um, having science direct this, people like Meldrum and, and Bindenagel, with a good group of, you know, Bigfoot leaders out there, um, it would certainly be a very viable proposition, but again, it comes down to one thing. Is there the will to do this? I don't know. I'm certainly willing to give it a try. Right, right. Well, how do you, so how do we go about this, John? You know, how do we get uh, more scientists involved? How do we get a greater enthusiasm? Because for me, it's an up. It's an upward battle. It's an uphill battle when you have so much junk posted, shared. Um, most of your, even when it is covered, uh, even a, you know, great stories or encounters are covered on the news. It's always made out to be a little bit of a joke, and I believe that's how most scientists and most people uh, look at this subject, based on the amount of people out there just just posting random and absolute uh, junk. How how do we really make this come into fruition, whether it's a group endeavor or just to have mainstream media and mainstream science look at this subject a little more serious than they ever have before? You know, you have these waves of up and downness where it, it gets a lot of attention and it drops, a lot of attention and drops. And usually that the attention comes from these grand, uh, well-put-together hoaxes or uh, pieces of so-called evidence. How do we... How do we go about this? How, do, how does this happen? Well, it really is a question of leadership, isn't it, Shane? Um, somebody, has to, somebody has to step up to the plate and say, okay, 
Uh, first of all, you've got to have a plan. Okay. Uh, you devise a plan. Uh, you come up with a strategy. You come up with a list of things that you are actually looking for that will be persuasive, that will be conclusive. Then you find, you know, there's a book called Think and Go, Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. He says the way that you make lots of money is you uh, surround yourself with a mastermind, which is a group of people who have particular skills in particular areas that will help you to make money. Well, I think the exact same concept uh, should apply to the Sasquatch world. You surround yourself with the types of people, trackers, people who are wildlife experts who are in this field already. We don't need to look outside. We've got plenty of them. Uh, one of the best people I know for bi biological um, understanding of the Pacific Northwest and various other places is John Mayansinski. I mean, mm -hmm. if you were present at the uh, Yakima Bigfoot Conference, um, he makes it so absolutely clear that there are adequate food sources for a massive uh, bipedal hairy hominid in a variety of regions. So you need to get people like that together. Then you need to get good outdoorsmen who have experience who will make sure that the other people are safe. And then we need to have the scientists to whom we bring the evidence at the end of the day after this is found, after they've directed us to go and seek exactly what we need to find to once and for all uh, solve this particular mystery short of finding a body. Well, if we found a body, that would be flipping amazing, but it isn't going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it really the high, is. Yeah. Low probability, but... So, very I mean, oh, and, and not, not to give too much credence to a, a very uh, um, sensationalized TV show, but, but the Bigfoot bounty concept, well, I mean, was, a, was basically a game show on TV, but, but having an organized uh, out, you know, going out and, having, and bringing evidence back, going out as a group and looking for evidence in a very, basically doing a grid ship search of a particular area. One of the, the uh, things that, that uh, I'm aware that you're, you study is um, police, police methodologies and investigation techniques. Yeah. And that, that bringing that into uh, Bigfoot research is a huge uh, advantage and, and uh, a brilliant kind of, uh, if we're going to study uh, things outside of big footing that could be applied to big footing, there, there is one that is, hits the nail on the head. I mean, it just, I, you know, going, there's a lot of glorified camping that goes on in, in Bigfoot research, and I put quotations mm -hmm. around Bigfoot research. But uh, uh, we, we really need to, to ha like you say, have a directed effort. Um, I just, the idea really gets my my juices flowing. This is this is kind of the uh, the thing that that could really add to uh, the subject and and um, depending on the results. I mean, it may be this happen, has to happen more than once. You know, I mean, if you go out into an area, you, like you say that, like we talk about, if we're looking for a needle in the haystack and the needle keeps moving. Um, so going out and collecting evidence and and doing the process uh, one time, we're going to learn a lot of stuff doing it that way, and uh, and then re and then setting up another uh, uh, similar endeavor and repeating it either in the same area or in another area that is known as a, a hot area. I, yeah, this 
this is a brilliant idea, and um, it. I think we need to move on it. So definitely, you know, last year there were a couple of um, uh, killers who escaped from a jail in New York State. They mobilized three thousand police officers and other law enforcement officials. And ultimately, they found both of those guys, right? Now, if they're they're looking for two human beings who I think are ill-suited to be out there in extremely inhospitable terrain and circumstances, right, Um, uh, and they were were able to hide from these guys for like several weeks at a time, we're dealing with a much uh, more cunning adversary. Obviously, Sasquatches are fully adapted to their environment and what have you. But if we got similar types of numbers or even uh, numbers exceeding that into the field, there is a good chance. And, yes, it has to be repeated. If you don't succeed the first time, what do you do? Say, oh, no, that was a failed effort. Um, (laughs) That's that's a little too elementary. You know, if you don't Mm -hmm. succeed at first, try, try again. And as Shane well knows, Robert the Bruce watched the spider trying to spin that web several times before it finally did so. <laughs> he dawned, it dawned on him that, you know, when you fight the English, you're not going to win the first time, the second uh, as well, but maybe on that third occasion we'll win, and that's exactly what we did. The anniversary was a couple of days ago. So us Scots <laughs> know about trying and trying again until you get it done. That's it. And I think this Shipping has to be away. the... Yeah, the athletes well, to Bigfoot researchers... Yeah. Well, and that's a, a lot. A lot of Bigfoot research up till now has been ambulance chasing. I mean, and and that you know we chase historical stories, and and while there there is value in that, it going and out into the field to an active area and, as a large group, um, and and uh, canvassing an area is is uh, up till now has not really been been uh, anything that's been implemented. I've heard talk about it before. The BFRO talked about it um, when public expeditions were initially uh, floated uh, on the BFRO. I'm old enough uh, to know that the the conversation was, let's get a whole bunch of people out in the field. We'll all contribute a little bit of money to bike equipment and and such. And uh, Because one of our advantage over, over our quarry is technological. I mean, they, uh-huh. they own us in the field. You know, if I'm just chasing around trying to chase a uh, an animal that that lives in that environment, um, it has a distinct advantage over me as a human being who sits and watches, you know, watches reality TV uh, on and uh, but but they they uh, but our advantage is technology, and uh, if we can bring that and apply it to the field. Um, in in mass in a particular uh, in concentration um, that that has huge potential to me. Indeed, and I think um, what we need to do is, uh, as I say, uh, I will discuss this with you two guys in particular a bit further and and see if we can, you know, brainstorm and come up with a concept because honestly. Um, Washington and Oregon are so fertile for this kind of thing. There's loads of Bigfoot investigators in those two states, plus us lot up here in British Columbia as well, and Idaho, of course. And uh, we could make something happen. Uh, 
this would be the best thing since sliced bread in the Bigfoot world, as far as I'm concerned, because you know we we see reality TV, and it it um, not intentionally does this, but I have noticed it in the responses to people on various forums that. Um, every week on telly you see four people go out in the wilderness and every single time they're out there you get wood knocks, whoops and what have you. John Green and Renee Hinden, in 50 years of searching for this creature never heard one whoop or wood knock. Now what does that tell you? It's not for lack of effort, uh, but are we looking for the right things here at the end of the day? And, you know, it's great to have experiences like that. I'm not knocking it. I'd be thrilled to bits if I heard something whooping out there in the wilderness. And I have, um, uh, not whooping, but screaming in the wilderness. But, uh, yes, thrills aside, let's go for the hard evidence. That's what we need, hard evidence, not the soft stuff, the, um, how shall I say it, the supporting type. We need the real thing because, you know, I'm, I don't care what skeptics think. I don't think what I don't care what critical scientists think, uh, because honestly, they live with biases and, and they're imprisoned in a realm that's extremely constrictive. We don't live in that realm, although we do live in a realm where we have to follow, you know, basic um, scientific uh, uh, principles Protocol. and what have you. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We we, we can't right. believe in Sasquatches that uh, materialize and dematerialize, walk through portals, you know, um, uh, are zapped up by tractor beams into spaceships and all that stuff. Forget that nonsense. Let's throw that out the window. Uh, not that too many people believe in it anyway. That's really the fringe. But the real Bigfoot researchers are too thrilled about seeing a footprint in the ground or, um, you know, a tree broken, a pile of... Uh, twigs uh, assembled in a semi-sort of intelligent way and what have you. Uh, but th- that isn't enough. That's not going to convince anybody out there. We really need to convince yeah. ourselves absolutely once and for all so that we don't say to people um, we don't have experiences. And people say, well, have you seen one? Well, you've been out in the field for 30 years. you see nothing? Well, I mean, I found tracks and what have you on four occasions, right? one of which was mm-hmm. uh, uh, corresponding to what Robert Morgan found way back in 1975. Same set of tracks, different place. But um, for, really, for, for ourselves, um, I think we have to uh, give ourselves some credibility here because, you know what, our field is dominated by crazy stuff, and uh, we really need to reel it in and, and put everybody back on the path again. If Renee Hinden was alive today, Half those people out there in the Bigfoot world who are making all kinds of monumental uh, statements would be shut up in two seconds flat. He was doing this right until the end through proxies on Bigfoot forums because he didn't like to post himself. But he would throw the argument out there and get somebody to post it for him. Great stuff. Yeah, Yeah, John, what's your opinion? You know, these monumental claims and and stuff – a lot of these claims I hear and see on on these uh, online forums and groups and Facebook and everything else involve around the, the the word habituation. What does habituation mean to you? And do you hold any credence? I mean, any believability into uh, those claims of habituation? I have a hard time chewing it because uh, I think people misunderstand the word habituation. Or misapply you know, the, biggest- the word habituation. Yes, exactly the point, gentlemen. This is what I was going to say. Habituation is not you getting Sasquatch used to you, okay, at all. It's getting you used to Sasquatch, plain and simple. Uh, They are the uh, puppet masters in this particular game. And um, 
while I don't see a single real example of it out there in the world, I wouldn't rule it out that they frequent certain locales on a more frequent basis than others. That's certainly possible. It happens with, with animals when they're looking for food sources and what have you, right? Um, they will go back to the same location over and over again. Um, we've seen some successes. I mean, honestly, Mike Green's footage of um, what I, th- I really think is a Sasquatch down in the Uwari National Forest um, mm-hmm. down in, in um, uh, North Carolina, and that piece of footage that was obtained by the, um, the thermal that was uh, obtained by the Olympic Project, right? That yeah. thing was, yeah. was frequenting that area. So this is a possibility. Um, uh, Winona, for instance, was putting stuff out there in the, in the forest in Alberta and getting responses too. That's all possible. But we don't have it happening on the scale that some people claim. It's like, I got Sasquatch in my pocket. Well, if you do, <laughs> there's the evidence. Sounds, right? sounds like a Tommy uh, Amaron song, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, hey, Tommy, if you're listening, we need a new song. On anyway, the, the problem with a lot of the habituators is that the claims are not supported by the evidence or the data. Um, uh, the excuse making in that particular area is phenomenal. Oh, well, they hear cameras. They can see infrared. How do you know this? Have you gotten inside the head of a Sasquatch and, and ascertained this? You know, it's all assumption on a massive scale. Well, if I go out there with my hands wide open, they'll, they'll come out of the bushes. Well, put a flipping trap camera on a tree when you do this, and you've got your right. evidence. We're ahead. We're a game pro. Yeah, well, I mean, I, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anything, but the trouble is with all these wild claims that are being made out there, um, the the evidence production is absolutely zero at the end of the day, and all we have is somebody's word that can be refuted, and it's sad because you know maybe there are real cases of habituation happening out there, uh, and people are keeping quiet about them, which is fair enough, but. All the public ones and the people who've drawn attention to themselves and called themselves habituators and they have Sasquatches communing with them by writing glyphs and all that kind of jazz. Well, honestly speaking, human beings can deceive you by doing stuff like that, or you might be pulling the wool over other people's eyes. Um, I'm not afraid to say that uh, and and be criticized for it and to say, well, how do you know uh, uh, th- that I'm doing that. I, I didn't say you were. You've admitted in a way that you were. <laughs> but you um, have no right. That, I mean, the, yeah. the burden of proof is on is on the person presenting the evidence. It isn't on it's on people crazy. that ask questions about the evidence. Um, the the idea that that uh, um, we have a lot of the stuff that that people talk about um, in habit quote unquote habituation. Like you said, why aren't they collecting evidence? They always come up with a uh, an excuse for for not needing to produce evidence. And when you uh, one of one of my red flags with people when I I talk to them about they tell me how they can go out and take me to see Bigfoot and and they have multiple encounters and and blah 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 is um, that that they get very defensive when you ask them any questions. You know, if you question their crap and and uh, uh, yeah, it's it's very frustrating, and I write, but I'm very quick to write that kind of stuff off. You know, it, um, we and you know the, the burden. With, of, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you I mean know, the burden uh, of evidence things, is on us. I mean that, that that's the thing is we're trying to prove a, an animal that is to most people a legend or a joke, and the burden of evidence falls on us 
and, and anecdotal stories. And I mean, we have plenty of footprints. We have, you know, there's DNA of stuff that, that has come back as, as primate and unknown. And there's, um, there's, there's phys- some physical evidence, but it's not, none of it is, um, is fulfills the burden of proof that, that is you're trying to prove something that the vast majority of people don't even think about. And if they do think about it, it's either as a, a cute story or it's Harry and the Hendersons or it's, it's, uh, it's a joke. Uh, and a lot of uh, Bigfoot research has, has not done anything to, to allay that, <laughs> you know, to set that aside. Um, and it, it's on us to, to all evidence has to be vetted very carefully with the idea that with a very fine filter that, that, uh, it's Bigfoot last, you know, and that people, I've, I've been out with people that have, you know, heard Bigfoot suckling on a, a baby Bigfoot suckling on its mother in the woods. And I'm like, dude, how the hell do you, can you even make that claim? So, uh-huh. <laughs> so you know, anyway. That that's that's within the realm of the plausible, okay? And that's that's mm-hmm. not so frightening for me. What is right. frightening is people who are habituating them and then seeing them walk through portals and all that kind of stuff and, and right. kind of misleading other people that this is so. I mean, I've heard of one particular case that alarms me, but um, suffice it to say that you can use an Xbox nowadays and create a portal out there, okay, which is totally <laughs> artificial. It's an optical illusion. And it would right. certainly give you the impression that there's a flipping portal out there. I've seen it done on YouTube, and it just blew my mind. It answered a lot of questions for me. And there's other ways that you can fool people by using mechanical means and what have you. And all of this stuff goes along with the habituation thing. Um, we had that whole business down there in Tennessee for donkey's years. It went on and on. It was supposed to have been happening over a period of 50 years and not one shred of evidence. Um, that simply says nothing happened there. And why is it so hard for people to understand and accept this, that nothing happened there because there is zero proof? You can't hang a guy from a tree, you know, with that kind of evidence. That's life. (laughs) Not that I would advocate that, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Though, though, uh, yeah, and I will not say it out loud that I would advocate hanging a Bigfoot hoaxers, but well, no, that's you know, it's it was the old way in the Wild West, right? Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> he stole my horse. How do you know? There it is. He's got it. There's my brand on it, right? And then they hung the guy from the tree. tree. Yeah, it's it's the same <laughs> in the Bigfoot world. When you make big claims, you've got a juicy website, a fancy Facebook page, and you're leading the gullible and feeble-minded. Um, that's that's not a, a great feat. People are impressionable and gullible everywhere. They want to believe so badly they'll accept stuff without using their discernment and their filters, as you said. Filter everything. No, and it it's just uh, um, you're you're singing to the choir here. I know that Shane shared shares that uh, <laughs> that feeling with me. So yeah, uh, yeah. sentiment. Thank you. <laughs> I think that's a, that's another good use for uh, bats other than making tree knocks. Yeah. We do this with every <laughs> realm of cryptozoology that we're involved in. You know, I mean, honestly, you should see what we're like in Africa when we're talking to people in the middle of nowhere, right? Um, 
And um, you cannot use any leading questions whatsoever. You simply have right. to get the witness to tell you what they saw. If it doesn't fit your paradigm, hard luck for you, man. The guy's telling you what he actually saw, what she actually saw, and you have to drop your preconceptions and what have you and go with what they're telling you, right? And this is, this is something that... Um, uh, in Africa, it's the purest form ever because we can't taint anybody with, with anything because, A, they've, they've never read a book. They've never watched a TV program. Um, they, they, they don't know a lot about the fancy gadgets that we bring with us and what have you. And uh, all they can tell you is their experience. And that, to me, ha has been uh, my favorite part of cryptozoology ever. I'm down at the far end of the Jar River in Africa with Bill Gibbons and uh, the two of us are talking to people and saying, well, what did you see? And they tell us stuff that's just completely beyond our ken and understanding. And you've got to go with it because that's what they saw. They'll draw it for you. They'll tell you what it said, you know, this kind of stuff. And they're not tainted by television programs, the print media, and otherwise. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point because here – uh, spe specifically in the states, uh, John, is that people are tainted. Uh, we got TV shows. We have people with stuff on YouTube, on Facebook, all these social media sites of how uh, this is what you should listen for. This is what you should look for. This is my techniques, and and people are very tainted, very tainted, and have these preconceived notions as to uh, evidence and what to look for and what to do when you're in the field. What's your approach, John, when you're out on an expedition, you know, specifically, I guess, talking about Bigfoot, what's your approach in the field? I mean, what are you doing? Uh, do, you, do you go out there and, and yell and knock? And, and uh, I mean, what are you doing, or what do you uh, perceive as possibly the right way to go about researching the subject of Sasquatch? You know, there's no real right way. Um, I think that um, because this is such a an immensely um, difficult field, uh, I'm willing to try anything. I've done wood knocks. I've done whoops and howls and screams in the forest. Um, I've, I've crouched around bushes looking for hair and tissue and everything else under the sun. Right now, everything is fair game if it's within the realm of normality, okay? I'm not going to sit down and have a seance with somebody to, to <laughs> you know, raise the spirit of a dead Bigfoot, like I've heard some people have done, you know, this kind of thing, or look for ghost Bigfoots. I'm going to try everything within um, my ability to look for something tangible, and I'm not averse to doing everything. I've heard people say, well, this wood knocking and this screaming, you know, uh, certain people never did it. Yeah, I, I am fully aware of that. I knew those particular people. Um, they chose not to do it, but it doesn't mean that it's wrong, plain and simple as that. Um, they, they elected to use other means, and that's all very good. And they were damn good at what they did without using all that kind of stuff, right? But um, <laughs> it's got to be a multi-pronged approach, a multi-dimensional approach, that you're willing to do anything and everything to get this um, particular evidence that's required to uh, prove this animal once and for all. And when I'm out there, I'm willing to do anything, man. Uh, some, some things I find a bit gross, you know, like leaving pheromones from particular um, things that ladies use uh. and what have you. Um, I personally wouldn't do <laughs> yeah, this. It has worked in the past. I don't think it'll work again in the future. But um, 
using people as bait, not in a negative way, okay, but in a very controlled and, and uh, wise manner, I'd be willing to do that. But it, it, it takes a lot. Of, you have to have a lot of controls and security for that kind of thing. But anything goes in this field, um, even a few things that might be considered a little bit out of left, only a little bit out of left field, and that's all well and good. I mean, if you left a peanut butter uh, candy bar out there like Mike Green did and the thing came and took it, well, look at that. That was a novel approach, and it bleed and work. Because if you look at that footage, he sure as heck did not fake that. There's no question in my mind that that's a real thing. Right. It's either a person, I mean, or it's a Bigfoot. It's either a naked person or a Bigfoot. So. Yeah, who's seven feet, five inches tall. Yeah, a naked right, person, right. no neck. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I wonder I know where Phil O'Neill was at that time, yeah. <laughs> ah, but so. he has a neck. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He just he just shoved it down in his yeah. No, I, but I mean that is. I mean there's there's certain evidence that, you know, that shows up as uh, one or two things. If it's a person or it's a Bigfoot. And and that's yep. one of those that that has to be and then you can apply additional filters to that evidence and like, you know, people have necks in this this uh, did not. So now, when you, mentioned, when you mentioned when you say a, a multi when you mention a, a multi dimensional approach, you mean in the earthly realm of multi dimensional? Of course, I mean that. You mean, <laughs> speaking, I mean, I make no bones about my displeasure of, of people who try, as John Green said, to try and solve a mystery with another mystery. No, let's stick to tried and true, right? And, and things that can be plausible and provable. Um, certainly, they're in this dimension. Uh, I don't know if they can go into another dimension. Nobody's ever proven that to me. Um, and so I don't even waste my time on it. It's a time waster, to be honest. Uh, but yeah, how the heck do you prove that? <laughs> yeah. Does anybody unless prove, can, you know? Right. Unless they can take you with them. That's the only tried right. and true methodology, that they took you with them and you saw what was on the other side. Until then, you and, could be having hallucination. Uh, hallucination. Right. Well, John, we've we, we, we talked, we talk, we talked about um, habituation and your thoughts and, and the whole thing about habituation, but what are your thoughts on migration you know it's a topic that's uh, discussed a lot of times and i think once again as with the word habituation people get confused with the word migration to me migration uh means one thing um and for a lot of people it means another what are your thoughts on migration and if sasquatch is migrating why and if it's not you know, I mean, what does the word migration mean to you? And it, what is Sasquatch? Does, in your opinion, does Sasquatch migrate? That's a really uh, difficult question to answer, but let's put it this way. Um, every other type of animal moves because it's looking for food sources mm-hmm. and it's looking for sustenance, okay, uh, water, food, whatever it is. Um, why would this apply any differently to a Sasquatch? There are groups of nomads in the human realm that travel from place to place in search of food and resources and what have you. So it's certainly something you can't exclude from, from the Sasquatch field. 
there are some examples um, of, of people repetitively at certain times of years, particularly with the First Nations. They can tell you this like down to clockwork when these things are going to be around because they've experienced them being there, going away somewhere else, and then coming back again at particular times of year. And this happened, or as you call them in America, American natives, right? And it's uncanny how good they are at this uh, in some locations. Um, Therefore, it leads me to believe that there is some form of migration, and it has to happen. Uh, Food sources can dry up in a particular area. For instance, like in Mount St. Helens and what have you, right, when, when that was devastated, they'd have to migrate somewhere else to find food sources because everything was destroyed in one fell swoop. So, you know, um, it's, it's a possibility. I don't um, exclude it. But I don't believe that anybody's actually proven it, okay, with anything that is absolutely conclusive at this point. So it remains an area of speculation and unproven, but it's certainly not a bad thing. Right. It's not a bad thing. You know, for me, migration, you know, whether, you know, there's animals, uh, especially if you're a hunter, you know that an- animals will migrate, or as I perceive the word, go from one elevation and drop down, you know, from a high elevation, drop down to a lower elevation based on the food and necessities that they have. Uh, that's a sort of migration. It's not necessarily hundreds or thousands of miles of migration. It's just a drop in elevation uh, based on their needs and where the food sources are going to be at the different uh, seasons of the year. Uh, to me, that makes sense where, you know, if you look at, and you go look at a lot of John Green's work for this, uh, where the sightings occur during certain times of year, you know, uh, it's from elevation to elevation, not necessarily from county to county or state to state uh, it's more to do with the weather and where the food is going to be. You know, if, if in fact Sasquatch is a hunter and does prey upon ungulates, uh, where are the ungulates going to be at certain times of the year? Uh, you know, where, where, where are the berries, the grass, whatever that Sasquatch may use to uh, uh, feed itself? If you, you look right. at that, I'm not the first person to look at this. I'm just saying, hey look at the obvious stuff that to me is migration if if you're looking at migration as a question as to if sasquatch does that yeah dead right i completely agree with that because uh people are very stiff with the term migration we Mm. should use the word movement do sasquatches move around yeah there's no question Mm. that they do that you know and um Sometimes it can be almost predictable. I'll tell you one example of this. It was a sighting of a Sasquatch on Highway 4 on Vancouver Island, just past Parksville. And um, I went out there to investigate this thing, and there was a native uh, Canadian lady who was uh, called Alice John and her niece who ran into this thing as it walked right across Highway 4, which is a very well-traveled highway because it takes you down to the west coast of Vancouver Island. And, you know, uh, myself and some other people were out there and we were looking at this and we were trying to figure out why the blazes this thing decided to take that particular route. Well, you look across the road on the other side and there's a massive great clear cut there where all the electrical pylons were. Well, you know, it made absolute sense that it had crossed the road because it was using this as a path to wherever it was going because it was a path of least resistance. So even stuff like that, and remember, 
uh, back in 2009, Derek Randall's talking about the camera project that he was doing there, and it made great sense to me at the time, uh, you know, that this was something worth trying, you know, putting the cameras up in, in, in areas that were well used by game, for instance, because where game is, Sasquatch has ready-made food sources. So, you know, um, I believe they move. I can't predict how they move. Um, I haven't got the same kind of uh, knowledge of particular areas like some of the Native Americans and First Nations do, but they're pretty darn good at, at, at saying, okay, around this time of year they're going to be around because that's when the elk are there, that's when the deer are there. You know, um, uh, wh- Where are they in the spring? Where the berries are, where the vegetation is, You know, when, that, when, when all that stuff comes out. And then they need to fatten up for the winter. So I'd go to areas where you have elk and, and what have you in the fall because they're going to need all that fat to get them through the winter, plain and simple. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it really, for me, is not rocket science. You know, looking at uh, Sasquatch being a flesh-and-blood creature entity out there, you, you look at your known nature and, and, and wait, what, what, is, what are bears doing? What are cougars doing? What are deer, elk, moose, uh, and, and, and known animals doing? You know, um, what are they doing? Where are they going? And why are they doing it? Well, if if Sasquatch is out there, which I I know it to be, uh, what are, they must be mimicking and doing some of the same things that known animals are doing, that are proven animals are doing. It's just not rock sense. Now, having said that, you know where are we today? Well, uh, we're still at a very much the guessing game, you know, and that's why we're discussing this. Uh, you know, it, it's a, it's a guessing game, but I think we are getting somewhere. I think we're. Um, with the amount of data that's being collected with different groups and individuals uh, and past individuals, uh, we're getting a little bit more of a picture, possibly, of predictability. And I think in predictability, you mentioned it earlier, John, I think predictability is uh, the key to this. Uh, this whole uh, conundrum, this whole question is predictability. Uh, where Sasquatch is going to be at any given time of the year uh, you know, elevation-wise, uh, you know, where are the sightings happening? What, what are people doing? You know, we often look at Sasquatch. Well, you know, one of the limp things, one of the things the limp project promotes is, well, it takes, you know, for a sighting or an encounter, it takes two things: a Sasquatch and and a person. You know, and and uh, so that wrapped in my head, you know, is is part of predictability, part of the predictability of human humans. What are we doing? And part of the predictability of possibly what Sasquatch is doing and mending those together and going, okay, well, to me, the bigger question is <laughs> when we're not around, what are Sasquatch doing? How do we predict what Sasquatch is doing? Um, and there's a lot of questions there. I mean, it's not obviously an a easy answer. Uh, none of this is. Definitely not, because you know what? Uh, taking an adage from the old cowboy movies, if we could head them off at the pass, this would be done. Honestly, <laughs> right. <laughs> if we knew where where the pass was, this is the question, right? It's that well, it's that we could get, factor. Yeah, if we could get John Wayne and Clint Eastwood involved. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to crack a joke. <laughs> well, where are they going, Pilgrim? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, back to our regular schedule program. Yeah, well, I mean, that is the question. But uh, another question I'm going to pose to you is, John, is, the, is do you think, you know, Sasquatch are more nocturnal or diurnal or what? I mean, uh, I, I have a, 
for most, it seems to me that most researchers or enthusiasts or uh, people out there uh, looking into this subject want to go out at night. They want to experience something. And, and Stan, I don't need to describe to you wh- why that is. I think it's pretty obvious. You get a, you don't know what you're dealing with. You get this uh, weird stuff, you know, from time to time, which is most of the time known animals. But is that where the research is to be at night? I mean, do you think Sasquatch is mainly nocturnal? Uh, you know, wh- what's going on here? If you look at the number of sighting reports on anybody's database, whether it's BFRO, John Green, uh, our own archives, and what have you. Uh, the preponderance of sightings that take place in the daytime far, far exceed the nighttime ones. There's, there's no doubt that they're, they're out and about at night, too. Uh, we don't know whether they're fully diurnal or fully nocturnal or something in between. Uh, what we do know is that you will see them at any time of the day or night. Now, one of the things that going out at night does, and I'm not meaning this as a criticism, it's purely an observation. When you can't see what is out there doing something, <laughs> you can automatically attribute it to, to Sasquatch Bigfoot and say, oh, a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot was doing that. Mm. If you had the same phenomenon in the daytime occurring, you might be able to see what is creating that. It's more objective if you do your Bigfoot searching in the daytime. Uh, the Patterson-Gimlin film was not filmed at night, okay? There's a classic <laughs> example. That creature was awake, alert, and moving like, you know, light, grease lightning. Um, uh, it, it wasn't in a place of repose or rest in the day. That thing was actively out doing whatever it was doing, uh, fully and awarely during the course of the day. And, you know, here in B.C., we hardly ever hear about night sightings. There are some and they do occur. There was a, one incident just a few years ago on Mount Archibald where two separate sets of people, four hours apart, saw Sasquatches on the same road on the same mountain, for crying out loud. But it doesn't mean that Sasquatch is nocturnal, nor does it mean it's fully diurnal either. I guess we just don't know, and it's fine to go out by day or by night. But if you look at the statistical data, a lot more sightings happen in the daytime than the night. And it's better yeah, because then you can say, well, I definitely saw a Sasquatch on a tree. Yeah, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Well, of course, you would expect that, I mean, almost all the the Sasquatch data that I've seen fits in what you would expect to be the case. There's no sightings in in Hawaii. You know, where there's a large population of people and a large large area of woods, the sightings are are much higher than some place that has a lot more um, uh, city area, you know. Um, and the same thing applies to um, uh, daytime and nighttime sightings. Of course, you're going to have more daytime sightings because pe- we have a limited nighttime vision. So um, uh-huh. there's a lot of stories at night, but but uh, visual stuff, yeah, I mean, you would actually expect expect logically that there'd be a lot less nighttime sightings than daytime sightings. But the fact that there's a they are seen moving around during the daytime means that, that they're not just purely nocturnal. I mean at least that, that lends itself to that unless they've been stirred up from their sleep and they jumped up and ran away. So Yeah, and we're assuming that they have the same sleep patterns and habits as human beings. Uh 
that may not be true. You know, um, they they may sleep whenever it's necessary and be awake when it's exactly. necessary. There there is nothing governing um, their sleep patterns that we know of at this particular time. They could sleep for three hours, get up, forage, and go back to sleep for another three hours, etc. There's no data whatsoever out there to contradict that theory at the moment, so it's still plausible. Right, yeah. and and actually that. What you describe is is often my weekend day. Get up, forge for a while, go back to sleep. Get up, forge for a while, go back to sleep. So, <laughs> aren't you the lucky bugger? <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, John, one of the things that always in, that intrigues me with this whole phenomenon is the Native American reports and the history there. You know, we're talking about all these these. All the subject matter, uh, migration, and uh, are they nocturnal? And uh, I, I, very few, uh, very few look at some of the uh, Native Amer- what we call Native American reports uh, and their history. I know you've done many a presentation upon this, and it's fascinating to me that you know, see, for us as uh, in this day and age, we're really not living. Uh, out in the woods, we're really not uh, having to support ourselves by hunting game daily, um, harvesting. Uh, we're not building huts. We live in houses. We uh, we have our garbage picked up. Uh, we go to our day jobs, and then you know when we have time, we uh, we we go out and research. Now, Native Americans, the, the original ha- inhabitants of the United States and and Canada and North America in general. Uh, this was their thing. They lived out there. They knew their animals. They knew what they were dealing with. And to me, that's very important because there's a history of Sasquatch reports, encounters, and the Native Americans, very, it, it, it's history. They talk about them. Is this not important? Oh, it absolutely is. I mean, honestly, I'll tell you the truth here. Um, before I got together with Winona, I had a uh, uh, a decent amount of knowledge about how BC nations view things and what have you, right? And some of the ones out east as well and in the southwest. Now, Winona used to live in, uh, this is my fiance, Winona Alexis, who lived uh, in a, on an Indian reserve in um, uh, Alberta, uh, just west of Edmonton. And um, in my discussions with her over the, the last year uh, or two, uh, Winona's just completely enlightened me about what the people uh, on that particular reserve, the Nakoda Sioux, uh, knew about this animal. And it was extremely enlightening. I mean, honestly, I hadn't heard of half of the stuff, uh, how well known this creature was to them. Uh, some of the habits of, the, uh, of this thing that just blew my mind. Um, there is much to learn from them, you know, definitely. And uh, particularly the, uh, the things that pertain to um, natural occurrences and what have you, you know, migration, predictability, et cetera, and that kind of thing. They seem to be a lot better at this than we are, and uh, we have much to learn from them. Um, I was watching Finding Bigfoot last night about uh, on sacred ground where they went to the Klamath Nation, and they knew there was an area that was frequented by Sasquatch and told people to stay the hell out of there and said, watch out for the screaming at night and all this kind of jazz. They were fully experienced in all this kind of thing, and Sasquatch is second nature. Us, we're the Johnny-come-latelys on the block. We come along, and um, we would do well to sit down and talk to them uh, uh, about a lot of stuff and uh, understand what they have to share with us in a a practical and usable manner. Um, 
I tell you this: when when they can tell you what seasons certain Sasquatches in certain areas are are, 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 are going to be there, and this is coming from the Native Americans and the First Nations, um, mm-hmm. well, hell, I'd like to go out and try that out and see if it works. Crikey! Right? Yeah, no kidding. It's amazing to me because, like you said, it is like second nature. It's you know for. For the few tribes that I've talked to, and a few members of some of these tribes I've talked to, it's like second nature. It's like, what? It, it's kind of funny. It's like, what's the big deal? Um, they're there, okay. They're part of nature. They're part. It's like no big deal, and it floors me uh, <laughs> because to me it's a big deal. Uh, but to them, it's, they've been living. Uh, they know what's going on, um, and uh, it's extraordinary that these, you know. They can be they can be looked at as anecdotal, but that is history. And if you look at everything they describe in nature, it's pretty uh, pretty on point. And so when they describe a Sasquatch or a hairy man or whatnot, I have to look that you know look at those things almost as fact. I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, with within reason. Yeah, and I don't think that people go. For, I mean, everybody has their myths, okay. Um, we have myths in the Western world, you know. I call them religion, but I, I'm respectful. Um, but the, the, the First Nations also have myths as well. But they're very clear about what's a myth and what's a reality, right? This is the thing. There's a clear divide there in in many many ways. And when it comes to Sasquatch, I mean, John Green once told the story about he went to see a native guy ab- uh, about um, you know a Sasquatch, and the native guy said, finally. One of you has come to ask about this. We were wondering why you never asked about this animal, right? <laughs> and this is the prevailing mentality. We've known about this. How come you're not curious? This is a pretty phenomenal creature, and yet you guys have never expressed an interest in this. What took you so long, right? So there, they've got a head start on us like you wouldn't believe. They've been encountering these things for thousands of years. It's in the memory of so many tribes, particularly up and down the West Coast here. I mean, from California to Alaska, it's pretty much the same thing that's been going on everywhere among the uh, Native Americans and First Nations. And we, dumbasses, come along at the end of the day (laughs) suddenly think we can tell these people something that they've known about for eons. Boy, that's a bit arrogant, I must say. Oh, wow. Yeah, very arrogant. Very arrogant indeed, Uh, especially coming in uh, second fold and trying to uh, question those that uh, know certain things. Uh, Very arrogant. Uh, (laughs) That's why John Burns was successful. He got the confidence of the the Chehalis people back in the day, and um, they said, well, look, this is this is what's been going on. How come you're suddenly interested in all of this stuff? Because we have no frame of reference for this. And they said, you've got to be kidding. You know, it was like, you guys don't experience this kind of stuff. Well, you know, uh, we do. And I'm telling you all about it now. That's what was the familiar refrain over and over again when John W. Burns, who uh, who, who basically gave us the Sasquatch on a plate, was finding out back in the day. Man, incredible. Incredible stuff, you know. But the Native Americans, for me, have been living with this entity, this animal, whatever you want to call it, uh, for eons, like you animal. said. Animal. Animal, whatever. But still, uh, it's no surprise to me that you still get a heavy, heavy in- 
uh, encounter reports or um, whatnot from some of these Native American lands where uh, you have these Native Americans where they, they've been given this piece of land. I mean, I shouldn't say given. Uh, uh, they've uh, accepted. They've been confined to it. Let's use the real word here. I'm not, a, right. I'm not politically That's- correct. Yeah, yeah. What? Well, I, I figured as much, but <laughs> sure. I, but but it seems that there's a ton of reports. I can look at a map. I can look at maps. I can look at uh, databases. I can look at reports. Huge amount of reports from these areas, still to this day, and a lot of them I guarantee don't go reported. It's just a, a handful, but it stands the reason why why they are still. Um, these reports are still occurring in these areas. I mean, is it rocket science to you? I mean, not to me. No, not at all. Let's put it this way. If you have crows appearing on your reservation on a regular basis, okay, you don't go and report to people, gee, there are crows here. Now, the the Sasquatch and, and Bigfoot in America um, are a common occurrence to Native people, so why would they go out of their way to tell anybody about a Sasquatch sighting unless, you know, events had diminished somewhat on their reservation, and so this was more unusual? But there are places where these things have been happening consistently for eons and eons. Why would they bother even to report it because it's a a fairly regular account and like, okay, we have these things, so what's the big deal, Whitey? You know, that kind of thing. It could be like reporting a deer sighting. I mean, yeah, precisely. A, a, yeah, right. We saw a deer. Oh, my gosh, I've got to tell somebody about this right yeah, away. I'm going mean, like, tell... to call the deer hotline, yeah, right. Yeah. No, I mean, oh, yeah, then... yeah, I mean, your, your logical uh, uh, assessment of that volumes too so yeah even to this day when sasquatch sightings occur on the chehalis reserve they're not phoning up people um to report it it's just a matter of fact things say hey if you guys you guys are interested in this maybe you want to come out and see these tracks right they're not out there casting them with uh, you know plaster they're not looking for evidence on the trees because they know these things exist they're doing it for the sake of us peons out here who live off the red, <laughs> right? And uh, be very kind to share this. They were doing well, this with John right. and Rene de Hinden, you know. Hey, right. and, uh, and, you know, uh, and, and a friend of mine who who is First Nation, if that is politically correct now, is uh, said, you know, that they they view it as just like part of their culture and as a matter of fact, and they think that the those of us that that consider ourselves Bigfoot investigators slash researchers um, are are just nuts for going out and, and looking for them. <laughs> I can see their perspective completely. I mean, honestly thinking, uh, we're not the discoverers of these animals by any stroke of the imagination. They have been part and parcel of the fauna of the Americas for eons and uh, the first peoples who were here knew all about them, encountered them, um, in some cases feared them, in many cases respected them, and just said, okay, you get on with your life, we'll get on with ours, and if we chance to meet, all well and good. You know, some of them were a bit <laughs> more aggressive than others, hence the warnings in some areas. But the reality at the end of the day was it was a live and let live situation, and along come us guys, the non-native people and we have problems like wanting to shoot one i don't know if there's a single native person out there who would 
ever even entertain that thought. Uh, it would not dawn on them to do anything of that sort. And we're stupid for having that kind of mentality among the non-native community. So, 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 well, John, I, I got to ask. I am aware of I am aware of one uh, native that that is interested in shooting one for the potential, what they view as the potential uh, financial reward for doing so. But well, greed I, makes I, you I, do I, certain things. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. And I like, you know, if it was an easy thing to do, it had been done already. So. Good luck exactly. I, I give him a, a good luck with that, and and uh, I'll race you to the to the uh, promised land of of proving their existence. So, you yeah. betcha. Yeah, <laughs> but John, I got to ask you. So, you know, given all of the research uh, that you have done into the Sasquatch phenomena, um, I I don't know of all of your experiences, but I do know that you've spent a lengthy amount of time researching the subject, uh, collaborating with multiple individuals and groups, uh, and, and doing your own research personally, I mean, it sounds to me like you're pretty sound that Sasquatch exists. Is that your opinion? Yeah, I'm absolutely certain that it exists. And honestly, um, a lot of it relies on personal experience, but also the fact that the Patterson-Gimlin film exists. You know, um, nobody has been able to refute that film. And Every time uh, I talk to a skeptic about that and um, and they say it's a guy in a suit, okay, tell me how this works in a suit. Tell me how this dynamic works with a person uh, wearing a suit. And, of course, they can't uh, refute that because, by and large, uh, people are, uh, uh, who are skeptical or scoptics appeal to an emotional uh feeling rather than a factual feeling. Well, it can't exist, therefore it doesn't. Well, that's absolutely stupid. What kind of rationale would uh, w- would that be in the realm of science, period? Oh, no, you, you can't have certain chemical reactions. Well, we've proven that we, we can. The reality here is, with, with this, um, this creature, the Patterson-Gimlin film shows an organic, dynamic, moving, living, breathing creature that shows uh, muscle movement, it shows movement of fat deposits in the body that are completely inconsistent with a person wearing a suit. So that's huge to me. The other thing is there are witnesses out there, and one of my favorites is this because they came from where I was born. There's a wonderful book out there by the Bartholomew Brothers called Bigfoot in New York and New England, and I love this book. I read it and read it all over again. There's the sightings in Whitehall and all over the place. And my favorite sighting of every Bigfoot sighting was the one by two guys who had come over, two Chinese guys from Hong Kong, who had come out um, and went fishing um, by a pond behind this uh, general store up somewhere up in upstate New York. And they were happily fishing away, and um, all of a sudden their fishing experience was kind of disturbed by a Sasquatch that showed up, right? And these are guys from Hong Kong who don't know anything about this creature. There is no Sasquatch in Hong Kong, okay? There's no uh, consciousness of Sasquatch. Nobody there knows anything about the Sasquatch. And yet these guys went back into the store and they said, you know, how come you guys have orangutans out here in the bush, right? Said, we saw a thing that looked like an orangutan, but much bigger walking around. So, you know, when you get a person, a couple of guys from Hong Kong who see this and then report what's ostensibly a Sasquatch, 
Um, that leaves it outside of the realm of possibility and very much in the realm of the probable. Uh, those kinds of sightings are fantastic for me. There's other things, too. European tourists who run into a Sasquatch and didn't know what the hell they were seeing and just saying, you've got big monkeys up there on the ridge. You know, how come? We didn't know there were monkeys in Canada. That kind of glorious <laughs> stuff is wonderful because it's not the jaded, impressionable mind of North Americans who've been exposed to Bigfoot Sasquatch in a variety of ways. This is all coming from unspoiled and untainted people. So their testimony, although anecdotal, is pretty damn good testimony because they weren't supposed to know about this, and yet they encountered it. It's the same with Ogopogo. You know, people like the German consul general from Seattle have seen that thing in the lake. Um, uh, diplomats from other countries who've been vacationing have uh, up there have said, you know, how curious that you have this animal in your lake. Well, they're not hallucinating like North Americans are thought to be, you know, when they see a cryptid like that, because they don't know anything about it. They saw the damn thing, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, what's really fascinating to me is that there are these these mysteries out there. Um, for some of us, lesser mysteries, it's more about, uh, evidence or proving, you know, but there are these mysteries out there, whether they're water cryptids, whether they're land uh, cryptid, you know, cryptids, mammals, reptiles, whatever. There are these mysteries out there. And uh, people like yourself, John, who I highly respect, uh, you've been at this a while, and you, you, re you're you really, John, really a uh, pioneer in a lot of aspects, but not just pioneer, but inventive and and per, uh, pursuant person um, that when I get involved in stuff like this, and I've been at it a while myself, but uh, I look towards people like yourself, John, many others, John, your Bender Nagels, your Mindzinskis, your Derek Randalls, uh, people have been involved in this. There's mysteries out there, and it's exciting to be involved and, and to know people like yourself because uh, you guys are well-grounded individuals, scientifically minded, and just want the answers. You want the truth, and to me, it, that's exciting. And uh, it really glorifies what I try to do uh, for me personally, because I feel, you know, like your John Greens. It hurts me to know that he went to the grave not knowing, um, after all his work, uh, a fact. And I don't want to see that happen to your Bender Niggles and everybody else out there. And I'm not talking about age per se. I'm talking about experience and, and the amount of time people have done in this research. Uh, it makes me want to do better. Uh, and I hope that for the uh, for the audience when you're you know listening to this episode here, do better, do better, uh, and, and really strive to look at things skeptically, but yet know that it takes a lot. Uh, this isn't easy. Uh, look at your forefathers. Look at those that have been doing this, that started this out. Let, let's do it right. Let's get somewhere, and let's collaborate and do things right. But, no, I mean, just, just awesome stuff. Thank you so much, uh, John, for joining us. Uh, you've really uh, been doing a great job, and it's been great to be in the field with you. And it's been great to uh, collaborate with you. And uh, I'm really looking forward to any future stuff you have going on. Well, you know, I'm really grateful for such kind words, Shane. You know, um, it's still, after all these years, a learning process for me. I'm nowhere near there. And, um, you know, I love it when I hear some 
uh, new guy in the field come up with an absolutely terrific idea for a way in which we could uh, approach this. You know, um, old people learning from the new all the way through. There's a wonderful exchange here of ideas, organic things. I mean, I've come a long way from uh, uh, where I was 27, 28 years ago. And uh, but still, oh my gosh, the destination still seems so far away, and uh, the only way we're going to get there is to work together. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Boy, you, you're yeah. barking up my tree, John. I tell you for <laughs> sure because I I uh, I'm excited about the idea. Like the, now, my brain is it's like a dog with a bone. The idea of, of doing this mass. Um, project with a bunch of like-minded individuals uh um, i think i think you you know you've hit on something that really really is uh a key to uh, moving this entire endeavor forward is uh doing a field a, a giant real field event with uh, a, a lot of people that and doing it scientifically um yeah i just that 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 like gets me stoked. It pushed my uh, Sasquatch button. So we're uh, um, I, I'm I'm pretty sure that we're uh, brothers from another mother. So um, certainly <laughs> sounds like it, mate. Honestly, maybe back in the Viking days, back there in Norway, right. sometime. My goodness, yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we look. I, we, with the time, I, I, I need to ask you this question because I like to ask our guests, have you had the confirmation experience, what I refer to as like, you know, almost every researcher that I talk to or person that, that uh, investigates Bigfoot um, has had that, has like some degree of, of uh, um, that they say for the confirmation experience. I'm 99.9% for sure percent sure that they exist but i haven't seen one so um have you had have you had the confirmation experience i missed two of them by literally minutes right back in the the 1990s and uh that would have put the icing on the cake but the great thing was that on both uh occasions uh the first time the stench was still lingering in the air right when i found the footprint mm-hmm. And the second time was it went right past the the back windows of uh, my uh, the French doors of my dad's place down there in Skamania County, Washington, right while we were in the house, and it went right by because the footprints were so fresh they couldn't have been made uh, more than five minutes beforehand. Right? Uh, it was just incredible because it was snowing; they would have been filled. And um, on both those occasions, that was good enough for me that I had I was dealing with a reality here, and it wasn't just you know um, somebody else's experience. I had both of these. It was good enough for me to have kept me in the field all these years. No, and that and that's something that another question for another show because we're running up against the clock here is like you know, the the amount of time and and uh, other resources, including financial, that that uh, a lot of Bigfoot researchers and and you have a uh, you expand into other cryptid and uh, cryptozoology zoology. Um there's gotta be something that drives people um and and a lot of it just is, is our intellectual curiosity about the world and how things work and and uh but um, why, you know, what keeps you going and what 
and in your case, you you have a uh, uh, encounter with Ogopogo. You had a visual sighting. Is that correct? Yes, several actually. Several. Okay, so we'll we'll yeah. have to have you on because we we do another another show just on water cryptids or other cryptids besides Bigfoot. So um, I be my pleasure. I want to personally <laughs> so I want to personally thank you, John, for joining us today as we we get up against the clock um, and look forward to uh, seeing you again here in the future. Shane and I will be. Shane and I will be uh, presenting at the first inaugural uh, International Bigfoot Conference in September. Um, and we look forward to and talking to you about the possibility of, of putting together this uh, large-scale endeavor um, to gather evidence and push this, uh, this investigation closer to it, its uh, fruition. Um, and I would like to... Uh, thank my my co-host and good friend Shane Corson for also being the, here today and sacrificing a uh, portion of his wedding anniversary. Um, and uh, Shane, do you have anything else to uh, to uh, say here at the last minute? No, real quick, just want to thank you, uh, John Kirk, for joining us uh, and for uh, just. Uh, being John, I really appreciate John Kirk. Uh, and for those of you that don't know John, you better know John. He's uh, a moving force in the field of cryptozoology and a delight to speak to and a fellow Scott. So I, I need to say, do I need to say more? No. No. <laughs> uh, I'm very appreciative of the fact that you guys have invited me back again. The first time was wonderful, and I'm, I thank you both from the bottom of my heart for, for bringing me back on this occasion. It's been Brilliant. wonderful. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks, guys. And next week, um, we will be playing a recorded show because of the holiday. And we'll be selling the independence of the United States of America from Britain. And uh, <laughs> um, we will be playing an encounter show with um, Leon Drew. So listen into that. And uh, until the week after, when we will be back on the 10th of July with Ron Bowles. Um, an investigator with the Bigfoot uh, Field Research Organization for uh, Shane Corson and uh, Gunnar Monson and our guest, John Kirk. We uh, thank you for joining us and have a great week. Um, let us know if you find anything squatchy out there. <laughs>